If you have your Bibles, we're ready for 1 Peter chapter 5 today. Super excited. Hey, uh, do you, do, how, how did remember last week, you guys, and then this week, the last song we did? We did a fun song at the end. Nobody with me? You guys are still turning your Bibles? or Some of you, I've seen you yawning during worship. I'm like, there's no chance for my sermon. They're going to be crashed out if worship couldn't keep them awake. Um, hey, I want to do, we do these abide services. Have you, how many of you guys come to the abide services? So we've done abide services and we take that last song, the one that's designed to be fast and upbeat, and we do it the entire time and, and, and just kind of a little more loud and kind of upbeat worship service, intentionally so. How would you guys like to have like an abide Sunday morning since we haven't had to have an abide? Now, the worship team has no idea I'm saying this. They're going to get the announcement with you guys, but what do you guys think? Everybody be all right? You hymns, hymnsels, will you guys be all right? Carl, can I do an abide on a Sunday morning? <laughs> You're not sure, okay. <laughs> all right, so I think this, I think that, that, they, they don't, if they didn't, Brian, they, they, they do. They want one um, abide-style service on a Sunday morning. So next week, or should we give them two weeks to prepare? Two weeks, all right. Um, so First Peter, let's, let's get into it today. I, I, we have communion, as you guys can see, set up in front of us. And so communion at the end of the service, it'll take us about two songs to um, receive communion as a family of believers. I love Communion Sunday because Communion Sunday is a, it's, it's like Thanksgiving every week. You know, and the thing I love the most about Thanksgiving is we get to get together with the family and, and we get to celebrate and, and share in fellowship. And so that's what communion is for the family of believers. And we do it once a month. If you're new to our church, um, we receive communion once a month on Sunday mornings, the first Sunday of every month. And then several times, usually um, on Wednesday nights throughout the month, where we'll have a communion service where we'll just take the time to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So First Peter chapter 5. You guys ready? This is Q&A. This requires a response. Okay, I'm just going to give you a heads up. Um, First Peter, by now you've gathered that the theme of First Peter is? Okay, for those of you that didn't know the answer or just too lame to say it out loud. Now you know it. The, now you've gathered by now that the theme of First Peter is? Suffering. Very good. And so in the context of where we are in First Peter... First Peter is, is written in the first century. And as we know, the, the martyrdom, two million Christians were, were murdered, were martyred, were killed in the first century for their faith. The, the Roman government under the power and the direction of Caesar Nero at the time was full on assault against the Christian church. They had a problem in Rome and they had all kinds of issues and they had blamed the Christian church as a problem. And, and, and as a result, the church was being persecuted. Caesar Nero would take Christians and he would dip them in wax and he would light them in his garden. And he would ride his chariot through his garden, butt naked, singing, um, born to be wild. As, as he would say, you are the light of the world, as he would light Christians on fire in his garden. And this is, this is all documented, true story, in, in the Fox's Book of Martyrs that documents this period of history where two million Christians were murdered in the first century. And so, um, as with so many things in the Bible, we have what's called a near, somebody say near, and far fulfillment or understanding. So he's writing directly to people. And he's going to actually, he wrote this letter in his day and he was going to deliver it to some people and they were going to read it as instruction from the Lord. And then, and then maybe unknown to him, the Holy Spirit was going to compile it into what we have today as the Bible, the Word of God, as future instruction for all generations, um, for all time. And so it's, it's valid and it's, it's applicable to our lives today in the far fulfillment in this suffering. Now, we're not experiencing here in this city, in this town, um, the type of persecution that Peter was writing to. But every one of us can take these things and relate it to our lives. Now, for the first time since the first century, when six million or uh, six million, did I say six million, not six million, two million Christians were martyred for their faith. We've surpassed that in the day that we live in today. And every year we continue to break a new record um, historically. And the number one people group being persecuted around the world is Christians. And again, we're not experiencing here 
but ISIS and Boko Haram and, 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 and all over, whether you're involved in, a, in an organized terror group or just in, in, in some kind of country where Christianity is not welcome, Christians are being martyred by and for their faith to the tune that surpasses that of the group that people Peter wrote to in the early church. And so we have um, these instructions. Now, one of the, the really amazing things about First Peter as we get into this is, first, is Peter, he lived all this stuff firsthand. He's writing from personal experience and writing from somebody who who lived it, somebody who failed, somebody who who fell down and got up. And we'll get to see the instructions from from Peter at this point as just a a wise old guy that's been around a long time and has some good advice for you uh, as you walk with the Lord. Amen. So it says the elders who are among you. Now, for some of you who, who maybe grew up with a different background, that term elders throws you off because. Um, I had an elder, someone with, told me they were an elder and he was about 12. And I'm like, you look like a younger, not an elder. <laughs> but I guess that's what he was called himself was an elder. So it was different. But, but Peter here and the term elder is actually what it means. It's somebody who's older in the faith, somebody who's an elder, somebody who's been around a long time. And, and biblically, the term elder, as Peter uses for himself, what he's saying is, listen to what he says. The elders who are among you, I exhort you. I am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And so Peter himself says that he's a fellow elder. He's addressing the elders. And, and basically he's saying the term elder means somebody who's um, the, the mature in the faith. Somebody who's been around for, for a while. Now, not somebody who has a, an elevated position or the president or the leader of your church or the group. An elder just means somebody who's, who's been around a while and seen some things, who has some experience in ministry. And Peter says, I'm an elder just like you. And, and if anybody has um, any history or understanding of, of the, the pope or the papacy that we have, the tradition says from the Catholic Church that, that you take the pope that is there today and you follow back from pope to pope to pope to pope to pope. To pope that it started with Peter and that Peter was the first pope. And then from Peter's descendants, and it went on and went on into where we are today and that, that Peter was the first pope. But it doesn't fit. Peter doesn't say, the elders who are among you, I exhort you. I, whom am the pope and the first papacy of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. He says, I'm a fellow elder. I'm just like you. I'm equal with you. He didn't even put himself... And if somebody could have elevated their position above you or the regular people in the church or myself, it would have been Peter. And yet Peter says, hey, we're just we're just like this in, in the family of God. I'm, I'm not above you. I'm not better than you. I'm not different. I have maybe a different call, a different role. I've been around a long time, so I got some advice for you. But I'm just an elder. I'm just like you, an elder, a witness of the sufferings. When did Peter witness in verse one, the sufferings of Christ? The cross. Now, Peter denied the Lord and disappeared. John was at the foot of the cross, but he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He cut off the high priest's servant's ear. He would have been there as they, they beat Jesus. He followed Jesus at a what? At a distance on his way there. Denied Jesus three times. And so Peter would have been there for part of the suffering and seen the suffering of Christ. And it says that, he was a partaker of the glory which shall be revealed. When was Peter a partaker of the Lord's glory? Several times. The first one in Matthew 17. In Matthew 17, we get this story on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus grabs um, Peter and James and John and they go up on the mountain. And Elijah and Moses appear. And Elijah and Moses are in their glorified bodies. They're in the body that you and I will receive that is designed to live for all of eternity and throughout heaven. A body that, that doesn't break down and wear out and, and hair growing out of your ears as you get older and places where it don't belong. So Elijah and Moses are there and the Lord Jesus, who was still in his flesh, is transformed before him or transfigured into his glorified body. And Peter gets to witness the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in, in perfect Peter fashion, you guys know the story, right? Peter's like, oh, Jesus, it's so cool for us to be here. We should make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then the Lord speaks up and says, Peter, shut your mouth. That's paraphrased, right? He says, Peter, stifle. Peter, quit talking. This is my beloved son 
hear ye him. And then Peter is there on the day that Jesus is taken up into heaven for the final time. And after Jesus rose on the cross, he appeared multiple times to the disciple. And on the last time, the disciples were there. And it says that they got to see Jesus go up into heaven. And so Peter would have been there witnessing Jesus's final ascent into heaven. Would that change any of your lives? If you were there, you saw that. But yet we have a guy right here who was there who's telling you about it, who saw it, who was a witness of it, should be at least good enough for a close second, right? Like, for those of you that went, yeah, man, that'd be crazy. I'd be like, and that's, that's, that's the effect that we feel it would have on us, but yet we have that same witness, that same witness of those that were there when he died and rose again, when he healed blind people, when he lifted the, the lame and they began to walk, when the deaf began to to hear and the mute began to speak and when Jesus was transfigured. And so Peter says, I'm a witness of these things and a partaker. In verse 2, practical instructions, he says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, willingly for dishonest, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. So now some just instructions among the... Um, the, the, the shepherds of the flock of God. And he says for the, the group of people that are elders in the church that um, they, that, that they should. Some of you guys have a King James version. I guess what I'm trying to say in your King James version. It says, what's the word instead of shepherd it doesn't have the word shepherd. It says something else there in verse two, feed the flock of God. So the term shepherd means feed the term pastor where we get our term pastor. And, and by the way, elder, pastor, bishop, deacon. The, these words basically can be interchangeable in the New Testament. They're often used in the very same way. And the word um, pastor literally means feeder or someone who's to feed. The terms shepherd and pastor are synonymous. They, they're used in the same way. The word um, minister, the literal translation of the word minister is servant. And so that's... Um, what Peter is saying is that we should first shepherd or feed the flock of God. So your role, my role as an overseer is to feed the sheep. What did Peter tell? What did Jesus tell Peter on the shores there after after they caught the fish and Jesus was cooking them? Um, and he said to Peter, he said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, feed my sheep. And then he went on and said the same thing three times. Feed my lambs, feed my flock, feed, feed, feed. And so it's the it's the Lord's will that we we feed the sheep, that the, the sheep are fed. Pastor Chuck used to say, I want to have the most loved, well fed, fed sheep in the world. And, and that's really the heart of church and wherever wherever church and whatever church is a, a big part of of church and what God's called us to do as we gather in a church is to feed the sheep. And so sometimes it's, it's a little bit of work and it's a little bit of studying and growing and reading and learning. But it is the key for your growth and for my growth is that we feed the sheep. We take Genesis to Revelation and we, we study the entire thing. And number one, because the Apostle Paul in the Bible tells us to do that. He says, I've not shunned to declare to you the entire counsel of God's word. And in the word of God, we grow. The other thing is we we really feel like we can't get a bunch of weird doctrines and false belief systems if we take into consideration the entire counsel of God's word. And if I want to form a doctrine or a belief, what what is God's heart on baptism? What what is that's a question? What is God's heart about water baptism? Well, that that's a good question that I have. So, so I go to the word and I try to answer that question. What is God seeking when he wants me to be water baptized? What is God's heart? What is the reason for it? In order to find God's heart, if I just go to one obscure passage in Job or somewhere even in the New Testament and I read about baptism and I I form all my opinion just on that one verse, there's a chance I'm going to miss it. But if I start in Genesis and I go all the way to Revelation, I look at everywhere where it talks about baptism and water baptism and I, I put together and I see the different angles and now I can feel the heart of God on the matter. I can know the heart of God on the matter. I can form a doctrine. And so it's so important that we're feeding the flock, feeding the flock. You know, here in the, in the, what we call the local church or the storehouse, this is where you receive, what do you, what do you receive in the storehouse? You receive bread. 
So your local church is where you're being fed. Wherever you're being fed the word of God, that's, that's your local church. That's the place where you go to eat steak, eat meat, and be fed. In verse number three, or two, we got to get to, we got to finish two. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eager. So a couple different um, ideas here for ministry and those in the ministry. Number one pitfall is in the ministry is being lazy. And the number two is, is doing it for the wrong reason. Doing it out of compulsion. And so th- this idea of a willingness to serve God in your life, in my life, is so important. Now, in the area, in every area, God doesn't want your compulsion. If you do something for the Lord, listen, look at me. I'm being, I'm being honest. I'm going to let you off the hook. If you do something for the Lord because you have to, stop doing it. If you give, if you tithe, if you serve in Sunday school because you have to, just stop. Because there's no reward. God's not blessed. You're not going to be blessed. There's no reason. Because there is no compulsion and nothing done out of, out of this compulsory kind of, of motivation. It should be done willingly. We respond. The Lord loves me. The Lord gave his life for me. And, and I want to give. I want to be a part. I want to serve. I want to serve in Sunday school. I, I, I believe what the word of God says about giving and tithing. And I want to be a part of that. You know, the widow's two mites and, and all these rich people came in and they gave all these lavish amounts of money. And Jesus was at church that day and this old woman came up and she had two mites left to her name. And that's how she was going to get her lunch Sunday afternoon. It was how she had everything, the only thing she had left and she dropped it in. And Jesus looked at her and he said she gave more than anybody else. It wasn't a matter of the amount of the gift. It was a matter of her heart that was completely trusting and believing in Jesus. And so in anything we do, you serve in Sunday school. Now, it can be work. Now, understand, like not saying that, that when you do something, it doesn't feel like sometimes like it's it's a little bit of work. You know, I know for you look at our worship team, you guys don't appreciate or may not notice it. I'm sure you appreciate it. But it, it, in order to appreciate what they do, you know, you see the hours they put in and practice at home. And when they meet here once, twice a week and practice their songs and go through and, and do all the things that go into. And so there's a lot of practicality of sacrifice and of work that goes into to worship set like we, we just had this morning. But so, yes, there is a work aspect to it. But the heart behind it that God's looking for is just a desire. Do you want to serve Jesus? You want to bless Jesus? I do it because I want to bless my Lord. I want to do it unto him. I get to do it, not because I have to do it. And then he goes on in verse number three, and it says, nor as being lords over those who entrust you, but being examples to the flock. So here's the, the idea. Jesus said in the seven churches that he wrote letters to, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. One of the deeds of the Nicolaitans was to lord it over. So two warnings here. One is don't do it for filthy gain. And the other is don't do it to lord it over. What are, what are the two biggest black eyes in religion today? And in maybe you witnessing to your friends and telling them or inviting them to church. Number two things, two things you hear all always. And unfortunately, they're true. Oh, church only wants your money. Number one warning here. Don't do what you do as far as church is concerned for, for dishonest gain. And number two is that the church just wants to control you, control your life. And both are very true. In so many respects, it has become people have have realized that there's money to be made in religion. You know, you, you guys heard of Church of Scientology or L. Ron Hubbard. His nephew or his grandson came out about a year or two ago. I don't know if you guys seen his, his deal. And, and he basically told a testimony from within inside their family about Church of Scientology and the author L. Ron Hubbard. And he said that his grandpa was a writer in the early days and he was getting paid per word. And he was making like a penny a word or two cents a word or something. And so at some point early in his in his writing, he figured out that religion sells. And so he started writing religious type of things and, and making them really wordy so that he could make more money because he was getting paid by the word. And then pretty soon his religious writings began to just sell like wildfire. And it was all made up stuff that he made up to make money. And it just continued grew. And then the cat was out of the bag and he let it roll. And we end up with Scientology. His grandson, that's the testimony of his grandson. And, and then, you know, in, in the Catholic Church, really the, the, the Catholic Church for so long, in the 1500s, the Catholic Church literally had the Word of God chained on the pulpit and it was only in Latin. And if the average person was caught with a Bible, the, death was, the, the penalty was death. 
And it wasn't, it wasn't even in a common language that people can read it. They didn't want you reading the Bible. Because if you read the Bible, then, then they couldn't sell you indulgences anymore. Then you, you would find out that the office of confessing my sins to a priest. Well, wait a minute. I, I think I read somewhere in Matthew that the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. And I read in in first Peter that I'm a royal priest and I have direct access to God. And, and I don't need to go confess my sins to a person. And I don't have to go and prepay for my indulgences and sins and all the things that were designed. And not that it was all bad. Don't get it wrong. But the reality is. People have, and against this warning that Peter lays out, people have used religion to control people and to make money. And it's an enemy of the gospel. It's an enemy of what's true. You'll never hear a compulsion message here. You know, Pastor Chuck would have fired you in a minute. Calvary Chapel, if you ever said something like, hey, we have this radio program, and if you don't give, it's going to go off the air. You say, well, you better let it go off the air. Because if God's in it, God's going to provide. And if it's God's radio program, then it's God's problem. And you can give people opportunity to be a part of it and give. But you, you, you can't come, you know, guilt trip somebody that, that I need your money for this program to go on. Guess what? Newsflash. You guys ready? God don't need your money. I promise you that. And if I ever preach a God that needs your money... That's a broke God. That's not a powerful God. And that's not a God worth serving. Have you guys read the book of Revelation? Do you think it's dependent on whether or not you tithe? Do you think it's dependent on whether you give 10% or you give to your local church or you don't do anything? Guess what? It's going to go on. God's program is going to go on. God's, God's, God's prophecies are going to be fulfilled. They're not for him. They're for you. They're for us. They're, they're for what God does in our hearts, in our lives, through those things. And so the Lord doesn't want, and Peter tells us here, us to give out of or to give out a compulsion. Number one, he doesn't want us to, to be in the ministry for dishonest gain. And he doesn't want us to lord it over the people. I'll go on. I had a story I was going to tell, but I think I better not. I'm in church. <laughs> Verse four says, and when the chief shepherd, who's the chief shepherd? Jesus. Jesus, yeah, you guys know, you guys should know. You guys have been around here a while. When I ask you who the chief shepherd is, the answer is Jesus. Something, preach it, you know. And then it goes on and it says, um, the chief shepherd appear, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And so it's just a promise, just kind of thrown in there by Peter, a biblical truth. And the Bible, and we don't have time to unpack them today. If you're interested, look up the word crown in the New Testament. You'll find about four or five different um, ideas that the Lord says you receive a crown for. And it's, it's a gift. It's a blessing for something that you did here on this earth. When you see this biblical term crown, it's something that you will wear in heaven as, as a badge of honor that, that for an accomplishment that you made here on the earth. Now, there's a place in the Bible where it says we take these crowns, these coveted crowns, and we throw them at the feet of Jesus because they're really not that important. What's important is Jesus. But here is a crown. Here's one of the places where the Lord gives a crown for those who who do those things that Peter just said, for those who serve, for those who lead by example, for those who feed the flock of God, who serve as overseers. And again, you know, it says, look at verse four really quick. It says, um, I'm sorry, verse three but being examples to the flock. Now listen, Jesus led a ministry that was um, example-led. He, he led by example. Jesus was a servant leader. Didn't Jesus say the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to what? But to serve. At the Last Supper, it was important that all, the, all, the, all those that were the guests, their feet were washed. It was practical, and there was a bigger picture. So who washed, the, who washed all the feet? Did Jesus or Judas wash the feet? Jesus washed the feet. And it's an example that Jesus wants you and I to follow, that we're to be leaders. You know, as pastor, again, the term pastor means feeder. The term minister means, means servant. It's, it's, it's my job. It's leadership's job. Jesus said, if you want to be greatest in the kingdom, learn to be the least of all, is to be a servant. And again, nowhere and in ministry, it's not God's heart that, that the people serve the leadership, that the other way around, the leadership serves the people. 
And so, you know, we're supposed to serve. We're supposed to serve. Oftentimes I have people always like apologize if they ask me to do something or pray or, or come visit at the hospital. Oh, I'm so sorry. I know you're busy. And don't apologize. Call. Ask. That's my job. That's what my heart is to do is to serve. Do a wedding. Do a, a celebration of life service. It, it, it's, it's what I want to do. It's what I get to do. I do it willingly. And it's my desire to serve people. And if I don't have enough time to take a phone call or serve people, or then I'm doing something wrong. I'm in the room, you know, I've got to rearrange some priorities because that is the call of God is to serve. In verse 5, he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So a couple things going on. First, some, again, some practical um, advice from Peter as he tells us, younger people, submit yourself to the elders. Now, if, if, if the younger people are the elders, we've got a little bit of a problem here. But fortunately, the elders are the older people and the younger people are the younger people. So he says, younger people, listen, submit yourself to the elders. So again, remember when we talked about marriage and we said that in, 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 in husbands and wives and men and women, that they're equal in Christ. They're, they're, they're co-equal. That they're, they're, they're no, God has not elevated the position of man over woman or woman over man, that they're equal. There's neither male nor female, Scythian nor Greek, slave nor free, that we're all one in Christ. But there's a little bit of a pecking order. There's positionally a place where God has placed a man over a woman. And we went through that biblically. And so here, Peter, in the same kind of pecking order, he says that, that in the church, the younger should submit themselves to the older. Why? Just it's a respect thing. It's common sense, really, right? If, if, if you're um, at your Super Bowl party today, let me, let me put it that way for you younger people. And you're younger in here? And you're in that really cool chair right by the TV and grandpa walks in the room and there's no place to sit down. What do you do? You get up and you give grandpa the chair. And it doesn't have to be grandpa. It could be somebody older and it could be some, you know, out of respect. And it's just it's, it's thing that we do that, that we respect our elders. And it's, it's biblical as well. And, and, and Peter is saying even among the church, you know, that the younger people Submit to the elders. Another place in the Bible, it says that younger people shouldn't rebuke old, the older, the older folks, the elders. And, and even if the elder is wrong, it carries the connotation out of respect. I'm not going to go and, 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 and rebuke an elder. It's not my place. It's God's place. And then, but listen to this, what's really cool in God's economy. Verse five, second part. Yes. What's that next part? That next line say. All of you be submissive to one another clothed with humility. So you old people that just thought you got the best chair at the Super Bowl party, <laughs> notch down, that, that there, there's a mutual respect. And that's, that's what God wants in his economy. That, that you know, the best, one of the best messages in the recent years that I've heard at one of the uh, regional pastors' conferences, 2,000 pastors, Greg Laurie speaking a couple years ago, and, and his message is, um, that, 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 that the older guys have been around the ministry for a long time. You elders in the ministry been around 30, 40 years, 20, 30, 40 years, find somebody who's new and on fire for Jesus and a young guy and get together with them. And you old guys learn something from the young guys and you young guys, you listen to the wisdom of these old guys and you learn something from the old guys, some of the, some of the new and some of the old, and we work together and, and we, we submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. And that we, we find that, that kind of dynamic. And it may, it's, it's great. It's really great. And so that's, that's the heart here that Peter's given. And then in verse 7, he says, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. This idea of, of casting. Now, we have these verses, right? These Bible verses that we use like on, on uh, greeting cards. And we put them on the calendars with little hearts on them on our desk. And we put them on the fridge and they're promised. This is one of those, okay? The one that says, if you find a wife, you will have trouble. That one's probably not on like your heart calendar on your desk. It's probably, it's probably not on a postie on your computer, but this one is. So I, I highlight this one, underline this one. This one is a good one. Um, that 
Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Let that sink in for a minute. The Lord, you know, you hear Jesus loves me, this I know. I'm not going to sing to you. You guys will start plugging your ears. And, and the idea that Jesus loves me. It, sometimes, again, just like the death and what we're going to do in communion today, you, you hear about Jesus' death so often it can be lose its, its power a little bit. And, 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 and Jesus loves me is so common that the reality loses its, its practicality in our lives. And yet, here in a different way, he says, the Lord cares for you. The Lord cares about your needs. He cares about your problems that you brought in here today. He cares about what you're going through. Do you guys always, every day of your life, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, just really feel like God just really cares about everything you're feeling at the moment? Anybody? If you do, stand up and tell us how you do it. Because it's tough. It's a struggle. But there's these reminders and, and being in the Word and feeding the flock, as he says. And here we get one that's, that's the poster one, the one we put on the poster, that the Lord cares for you. Now, this word cast, a couple things. The, the word casting, the, the, um, the Greek word is, is exactly that. It's used one other place in the New Testament, and it's where they cast their, their, their clothes coats at the feet of Saul as he was as he was there they cast them down to literally to take your cares and to throw them down at the feet of something the root of the word casting here is ripped ripto in the in the greek and it means almost exactly like a riptide or something that is rolling that goes in and out and in and out and both are true the lord wants you to take your cares and cast them upon him but the reality is in life check this out if I just came up here today and I said, oh, I just cast all your cares at the feet of Jesus and, and then he, they just go away and you never see him again. You'd be like, what are you talking about? That's just not real life. I do. I do. I cast my cares at his feet and tomorrow they're back. And, and that is really the idea. It's just the truth. And, that, and that's even what the root of the Greek word means. It's this, this kind of relational, you cast them at Jesus's feet and, and, and oftentimes in love and in relation, he gives them back. Or he lets you deal with them or he he's helping you. But he's this is the way that he's doing it as as we we continue to pray. We continue to seek him. We continue to cast. We continue. You know, I think Lydia says, keep on swimming, keep on swimming or however that goes. Just keep swimming. And, and just keep casting, just keep casting, just keep casting. And but don't think it's strange that they came back. And it's it's not not God's not caring for you. He's dealing with something in you. We're going to get to uh, how to practically deal with those those things in a minute. Now, verse number eight. Now, verse number eight and nine and ten are really the heart of what I want to share with you guys today. So in the last service, I spent way too much time in the first eight verses. And I said, in the next service, I'm really going to condense the first eight because I want to spend some time. I want to camp for a minute in um, eight, nine and ten. And then I got to this service and yeah, spent too much time in the first seven verses. But we, I, I do want to unpack the, 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 this next section here as really what, what I really want to share with you guys this morning. The first one, verse 8 says, be sober. Okay, now do I need to comment on that? Do I need to unpack that? Do I need to tell you what that means in the Greek? Be sober? Is that like English? You guys can understand that? Yeah? Does God want you to be sober? Is it God's will for you to be sober? Then is it sin if you're not sober? Yes. So if, if I bring up drinking, then, you know, it's going to take me a while to unpack it to do it justice. So I'm going to try not to too much. But um, the Bible doesn't say that it doesn't teach that you don't have the liberty to have a drink. I, if it said that, I would teach that. But it doesn't teach that. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, have a drink for your infirmities. Um, when the Lord Jesus turned the water into wine, I don't care how you want to twist it. It was alcoholic. There's just no two ways about it. The people that drank it got tipsy. And unless you get tipsy from drinking grape juice, there was something more in it. <clears throat> and some say that the, the amount of alcohol was, was really diluted from what we drink today. Okay, I'll, I'll buy that. that. That could be possible. They just went to the bathroom a lot, but they drank enough to... to um... But... The Bible is very clear on this, and I can be dogmatic on this. It says it here and in multiple places in the New Testament. You can't be drunk. 
Don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. Be sober. Now, this sobriety is not just talking about alcohol. It's talking about everything that you could use or put into your life that, that, that would alter your state or your, your mind, whether it's pharmaceutical, whether it's um, social or um, other kind of drugs that can be taken, illegal drugs, that, that it's all in the same category of be sober. And, 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 and it's coupled with this um, verse, this next verse that's coming up and for reason by the Holy Spirit about temptation that comes from Satan. And in that, you know, sobriety opens your life and non-sobriety just changes and opens up for your life for temptation for Satan. It opens your life for attack from Satan. It changes everything in your ability and your ambitions to grow in the Lord Jesus when, when, we, when we get rid of sobriety in our lives or when we're not sober. And so just for, for sobriety's sake, he says, be sober, includes drinking. I, I heard a true story and um, thought it was funny. This was the one I wasn't going to share earlier. Um, a, a guy I know went to church on, uh, on Super Bowl Sunday. Um, I think it was like the first Super Bowl. It was like 50 years ago. And um, the, the, the person speaking said, to the congregation that if you go home and drink a beer today while you watch the Super Bowl, you're going to go to hell. And, uh, you know, that's just not true. That's not true. I can't, I can't tell you that here today because, and I'm not condoning you going home and getting drunk. The Bible says there's, there's liberty, but it's just, if the Bible taught it, I could teach it. The rest of that story is he stood up in there and looked at the person that invited him and said, this is BS <laughs> and walked out right in the middle. So I don't want you guys to do that. And I'm not condoning drinking, but I am telling you that, you know, that, that, that I, you have to be sober. That's just the bottom line. Where's that, where's that meter for you in sobriety? Let, let's just take, um, if you're driving in your car and you have to blow in that thing to decide whether you're going to go to jail or not, what, what would you have to blow before they let you go or they take you to jail and, and cost you 10 grand and ruins your life? 0. 0.08. So maybe that's your line. How much alcohol do you have to consume to be 0 0.08? Very little. Okay, everybody's different, but very little. And if that's, if that's society's meter for, for legal and illegal, then maybe that's the line for, for, for being sober and having liberty to have a drink biblically. All right, that's not the message. It's not about drinking, I promise. It's Super Bowl Sunday. I, anyways, this, this is what I want to share with you guys today, and we're going to get through it in a few minutes. In verse number um, eight, the rest of eight, he says, be vigilant because your adversary, listen, the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings and experience by your brotherhood in the world. So here we have, first of all, the statement from Peter, listen, Christians, is that the devil, your adversary, he walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. Do you realize that you have a real enemy? Do you, now, now take it from Peter who understood this, who Jesus said, Peter, you have a real enemy. Satan has personally asked to sift you, but Peter, I'm going to pray for you. And Peter didn't take it seriously. And then when it came back and it, and it bit him in the butt and, and he blew it and he saw it and he experienced it and he failed and was restored by the grace of God. Now he comes to you and I and he reminds us that it's true. It's a reality that, that we have a real adversary, Satan. And he desires to sift you like wheat. He desires, he goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour is what Peter tells us. Jesus tells us the same thing in John chapter 10. That the thief only comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's Satan's plan for your life. And he has a plan and he will um, execute his plan in your life. If you don't resist him. If you don't seek the power and the change of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. So what's the advice here Peter gives us? Resist the devil. So if we, if we go to the other writers in, 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 in the Bible, in our consistency of taking the entire counsel in God's word, the first place I think of is in James chapter 4, verse 7. And James tells us, the same strategy. Resist the devil and the devil will what? Flee from you. Now we do the resisting and the devil does the fleeing. And Peter tells us to resist. And, and, then, and then Paul tells us the same thing in resisting. So the strategy is the same that we're to resist. Not to run. That's the crazy part. Not to run. 
You realize in, in Ephesians chapter 6, when God is describing your, your, the armor of God, you have a helmet of salvation, you have a breastplate, you have um, your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel, and you have, you have the shield of faith, and you have the sword of the Spirit. You know where the only place you don't have protection is? It's a description of the Roman army. Where was the only place they weren't protected? They were vulnerable. Your back. Your back wasn't covered. Why? Because the guy next to you covered your back. And so there was no armor for your back. And, and, and where you're vulnerable is if you turn and ran. And Peter here says resist. It's kind of different. What, what's cool too about this? He says, he uses this analogy, I'm sure by the Holy Spirit, that, that the devil is like a roaring lion. Now, um, in, the, in the wild, wild west, in the safari, in the jungle, with real lions... The, the roaring lion oftentimes is not the most ferocious and the fiercest lion. Oftentimes, the, the, the roaring lion, he's the old lion who had been the king of the tribe, the leader the, 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 of, at one time, and, and now he's older in age. He's like Rick and his hips don't work so good. And um, he was really, really, really fierce at one point, but now he's getting old. He doesn't have all of his teeth, the lion. This is true. His, his joints don't work like they used to. But, but because of position, because he was the king at one time, because he was the tough top dog at one point, he, he holds this position in the lion tribe as the roaring lion. And he looks mean. And he looks mature. But, but really, the, 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 the younger lions, they're, they've been around and, and not as long. And they're a couple years old. And they're healthy. And they're, their teeth are strong. And they're fierce. And they're, they're much better hunters than the old lion is. So, so the roaring lion... In the way that the lions hunt, when the, when the gazelle or the antelope or whatever they're hunting is, is there, the roaring lion roars. And it's mean. But he's not scary. But then what, it, what, what, is the, what does the animal do that's being hunted? Which way does it run? Away from the roar. And what does he find when he runs away from the roar? The hunting lions, the young lions waiting there to destroy him. True story, the way lions hunt. And Peter says to resist. You, you know, if we were there and we could talk to that gazelle, what would we tell it? We wanted to save it. Like, hey, run towards the roar. Don't run away. And that's what Peter is telling us. You know, the Bible says that um, Jesus said that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against him. Now, how many of you guys were walking maybe your dog in your neighborhood and one of your neighbor's gates just jumped out in the street and smacked the snot out of you? Anybody? Neighbor's gate just ran down the street and hit you? No. But a gate, a gate is not a defensive weapon or, I mean, an offensive weapon. It doesn't come and attack you. A gate is defensive. A gate keeps you out. And the only way a gate keeps you out is if you don't charge it or jump over it or ram it. And so that's why Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against you. You know how the gates of hell prevail against the Christian church? It's when the Christian church does nothing. It's when you as a believer do nothing. That's the only way Satan prevails. But if you put your head down and you charge that fence, Jesus said it's not going to prevail. It's going to come down. And he wants us to be offensive. So, so Satan has what the Bible describes as fiery darts of temptation. And we could take, let's take lust for an example. Now, ladies, whether you, you realize this or not, it's a real temptation for men. It's something that we have to be on our guard and battle for. And you don't understand it because you're not stimulated um, physically. You're stimulated emotionally and with nice words. And... But men, the way that God created us by design, we're stimulated visually, physically. And so when we see a, a pretty girl in, in too tight of clothes, there, there's, a, there's a battle there. And now the sin is not noticing in the grocery store the girl walk by your aisle because you, you're human and you live and you, you have to know where to go. Otherwise, you have to walk around like this. So I've noticed her. Now, now the sin is the second, the third, the stare. The, the, that's, that's where the Bible draws the line in that lust. But it's a battle for us as men. For you women who maybe don't have that same struggle to see uh, Mr. Suave walk by and, you know, keep double triple checking it's just not your thing but maybe maybe it's something else maybe you you're just a gossip because that's a bigger temptation for ladies me and my buddies don't worry we're not gossiping about you we could care less that's not our thing 
But you ladies get together and, you know, you start talking. Somebody's name comes up and everybody starts talking bad and saying things you shouldn't be saying and secrets and, and, and are gossiping. And it's a temptation. You know it. And your heart wasn't to do it. And you gather and you're like, Lord, I didn't mean to do that. I don't know why. I just started saying all those things about her. And, and, and guys, I don't know why. I, I just kept staring and looking. And, and pastor, I'm, I'm struggling with this temptation. So we come to this verse and, and we read what it says. And if I just said, hey, resist it. Resist that temptation. Resist that look. Resist that second look. You go back in your car the next day and, you know, some girl next to you gets out of the car and you're like, resist, 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 resist. Like, and it just, it doesn't, it, that, that itself doesn't compute. But here, here's, here's the concept of this roaring lion that Peter tells us about and us being offensive. It is, is James said specifically, if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. So now you say, okay, okay, Satan. And I'm not advocating talking to Satan, but for uh, analogy's sake, bear with me. Every time I'm tempted to look at that girl, I'm going to pause and I'm going to pray for 15 men in our church that are struggling with the same thing. And I'm going to pray that, that God would give them victory and they would have victory today over that area. And every time you get tempted in that area, you stop and you begin to pray. And every time you're praying, Satan hates it because you're shooting darts right back at him. And you're praying for your brothers and sisters. And then every time you're tempted or you find yourself gossiping about somebody or you turn that on the offensive and you say, OK, OK, Satan, every time that, that, that I fall in that area or I'm tempted, I'm going to start I'm going to start saying 22 good things and and lifting up that person and, and, and being um, positive towards them and speaking positivity about them and healing and love. And Satan's going, well, wait a minute, that's not working. Every time I tempt this guy with lust, he starts praying. Or, or what if it's depression or, or you've lost a loved one and you struggle with um, finding victory. And you tell Satan, okay, every time I, I feel that and I'm feeling defeated, I'm going to turn on worship and praise music. And I'm just going to lift my hands and praise Jesus every time I'm feeling depressed. And Satan puts these fiery darts into your life. And rather than you go to the cupboard as intended and pick up a bottle because you're depressed... You turn on the praise music as loud as you can and you start worshiping Jesus. And what does Satan say? Like Bart Simpson said it best? Or was that Homer? Don't! It didn't work. It didn't work. That's the idea that Peter's conveying here. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Turn it on the offense. We are designed to be offensive, not defensive. Not to run. And if every time Satan comes at you, you, you beat him in victory with some of the weapons and the tools that God's given you. Have you guys ever seen like um, Lion Week on that geo? There's no such thing, huh? You guys heard of Shark Week? Well, okay, I'm making up Lion Week. It's, it's a new thing. It's coming out if you haven't seen it yet. I've seen it. Um, but what, have you ever watched like the, the lion packs maybe? And, and, you're just, and you see these hundreds of... I don't know. Pick one. What, one of these animals like with the horns that are like really look what wildebeest or some of the, the gazelles or antelope. And they have these horns, right? And they're pointy at the end. And, and these things are swift and there's just hundreds of them. And a lion, four or five lions come in and, and they just pick them off as these things just run for their lives. What, what would happen if like six or eight or 20 or 40 of these, because there's hundreds of them with their horns, just went horns down at that pack of lions, right? Don't you think they could win? Like, I mean, just rammed them and just started coming in and coming from every angle and just fought back. Like you think, hey, the lions would get them. Don't you think it would work? It would work, right? The only reason why the lions are so successful is why? Because they're in fear their whole lives. They're in fear. The whole hunt, the, the, the prey is just running in fear. And, and Peter says, and the word of God says, hey, don't be that antelope that just runs in fear all the time. Turn and face. Really quick. And then, and then the last verse, then we'll be done. We'll take communion. For every Old Test or New Testament truth, there's, there's an Old Testament example. And one of them is we, we have this amazing man of valor. Now, now for you guys, men, men, this was the story for us. This is a man's man. A real story about a guy named Benaiah in the Old Testament. You'll find it in, um, in, in Samuel. So if you want to go look it up, read it this afternoon. Really cool story. And, and this guy, mighty man of valor, he goes and it says, the, the Bible records for us by the Holy Spirit that he killed two lion-like men. 
I don't know what that is. I guess that means the two lion-like men he killed were fierce. They were bad to the bone. And he killed them both. And then, the, and then the next thing it tells us about him is that there was a lion in a pit on a snowy day. And the dude jumped into the pit with the lion. And he came out alive. And the lion didn't. Then it tells us that there was an Egyptian with a spear. And he went and he took the Egyptian spear from him and killed him with his own spear. And you see this this picture of him killing the lion in the pit on a snowy day. And he goes down into this pit and he and he fights and he prevails. And just the same idea of resist the devil is that quit, quit cowering, quit showing him your back, quit running and giving him the advantage because he's like the roaring lion. And the reality is in the wild, the roaring lion is not the one you have to worry about. He's the no teeth knees and joints don't work anymore guy and if you ran towards him and if you ran towards him with a couple of your buddies you'd take him out and he would flee amen now now the last part of this verse 10 it says but may the god of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by jesus christ after you have suffered a while so you're going to suffer a while and last week again you guys the idea of suffering is that god uses suffering in your life Just let it happen. Allow it. Receive it. But after you've suffered a while, after God has allowed you to go through some things, He's going to use it to perfect things in your heart, in your life. Now listen to this progression. Check this out. It says there's four things that the Holy Spirit tells Peter to write down. That He's going to perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Now these four words are a picture of your Christian life from birth to, to victory. Somebody say from birth to victory. Now, now you, the Greek, you got to have the Greek here a little bit, but the word perfect, the, the, the Greek um, word means mending nets is what it means. When the same word is used when it says that Jesus came and he found the disciples and they were mending their nets when he called them. So they were taking something and they were making it perfect. They were perfecting it. They were, they were sewing the, the gaps and the holes. And so in your life, the Lord um, is going to mend your nets as he, as he begins to perfect you in your life, in your Christian walk. And then the word establish means to mature or set fast. And it's a process of your life of Christianity, of your, of your life being mended. And then maturing as you grow in your walk with Christ. As you, as you develop, as you get in the word, as you grow and you mature. And then the strengthen, that one's a tough one in the Greek. Um, strengthen in the Greek means to strengthen. It means to to make strong. It just literally means to strengthen, to make something strong. So the Lord wants to to make you strong or he's making you strong and then settle. The word settle you is is a foundation word as as a foundation hardens and settles concrete. Jesus in your life is the rock. He's the foundation. And so, so he wants to mend your nets. He wants to make you mature. He wants to give you strength through, through in areas of weakness and, and set you on a foundation that is Jesus Christ in accomplishing this victory in your life. Amen? Amen. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen.